Welcome to Follow Your Fire, a podcast on life, work, and purpose. Join us as we reckon with the questions, what should I do with my life? Do I have a purpose? And if so, how the heck do I figure it out? We'll hear some real stories, get some real ideas about how to find purpose, and have as much fun as we can along the way. I'm Melissa Pinnell, life coach, purpose guide, and your host on this journey. I am so glad to have you along. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of the podcast. I am so glad to have you along. I have been super happy to hear great feedback from you guys listening, saying that you like the podcast and that it's helpful. You're getting a lot from it. I am so happy to hear that. And if you are getting a lot from it, then please, I encourage you to share it with someone you think might benefit or a lot of someone's. But if there's somebody that you're thinking of right now that you're like, you know what? This person needs to hear this podcast. When you're done listening, send it to them because I bet you're thinking of them for a reason. Yes, share, subscribe, rate, review, all the good stuff. Let's get on with it. First, a little disclaimer. This episode is a bit different, so stick around. I'll tell you why. I'm really excited to bring you the next guest. It's my friend Mitch. He is a legislative advocate for the California Labor Federation. His entire job is basically to make conditions better and safer and more secure for every worker in California. So it's pretty important. So for example, one of the bills he helped to write and he lobbied for, and it did pass, was for a mandatory three days of paid sick leave for all workers. Like all workers. I mean, there are of course a few exceptions to the bill, but even positions like those in the food and beverage industry, which usually do not come with any kind of benefits, even those workers now have three days of paid sick leave. Now at the time he was working on this particular bill, His wife and I were actually both servers at a really fun and funky restaurant in Sacramento. It's still an awesome restaurant, has a really generous owner, awesome staff, a lot of servers and employees who were a little older, a little more established. Many had families, many had advanced degrees, alternative jobs, creative passions. For some people, this was their main gig. For others, it was a reliable stream of income while they pursued art or real estate. Or I remember one was a professor at a local university. So it was different things to all of us, but working in that fun and family-like restaurant was our job. It was how we paid our bills. And the cool and supportive and family-like environment didn't change the fact that if we were unable to come to work at that restaurant for whatever reason, we didn't get paid that day. And forget missing work for things like a vacation or even, you know, parents of a sick child who might have to stay home with that child. Forget getting paid for stuff like that. Even if we were really ill, if we didn't come to work, we lost wages that day. Which, as a side note, that can be a reason people go to work when they really shouldn't. Knowing that you're going to miss out on income that can literally support your family. And maybe you live paycheck to paycheck. That can get even the most contagious people out of bed, clocking in, when maybe they really shouldn't be. So anyway, I digress. A lot of people think, and I've seen this argument made many times on the internet and just in general, well, yeah, that's just the nature of being a worker in the food and beverage industry, right? You don't get paid time off. You have to deal with the downside. You signed up for it when you got the job, right? Not getting paid when you're sick. It is what it is. I mean, we chose to work in jobs like that, right? 
And I got to just pause for a second. And let's remember the same people who argue that these workers don't deserve rights are people who often are benefiting from their job. People who might swing through the drive-thru on their way home from their high-paying, salaried, benefited position. Just trying to point out that it could be the cats smoking cigars in the corner office that introduced this idea that the working class made their own bed when they decided to take jobs that don't have benefits, security, things like paid time off or healthcare or the whole shebang. So let's just pay attention to where we get these ideas from the people who benefit from them. But here I go on a rant when all I was really trying to tell you about was Mitch and this interview. So let me get back to that. So it's easy to think that anyone in a job without general benefits, like paid sick time, chose to be there, and it just is what it is. That's the normal way of thinking, and I say that because I even thought like that. While I was working in the food and beverage industry, I thought like that too. But Mitch's whole job is questioning norms that workers live with today, suggesting that even if you work at a job like food service or retail or any position that society generally assumes doesn't come with benefits, that even you might still deserve to have a few sick days per year and actually get paid for them, at a minimum. Because after all, what society considers normal in one time period isn't always accepted in another, right? It's often in retrospect that we're like, oh, that totally wasn't okay. For example, back In the late 1800s here in the U.S., it was considered pretty normal to have really long work weeks. There were not regulations on how many hours in a day people should work, how many hours had to be between shifts that people worked. People didn't have to pay you for overtime. There weren't safety measures in place. It was literally often cheaper for people to die on the job in lots of factories than it was to pay them adequately. Those were just normal working standards back then. And then things happened to change that. Like, for example, a big thing that happened was the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire that actually caused a lot of norms to change. So if you're not familiar with this, the Triangle Shirtwaist was a factory in Greenwich Village in 1911. It was a garment factory. It was on the 8th, 9th, and 10th floor of this really tall building. And one day in that garment factory, a fire broke out. And what do you do if there's a fire? You get out, right? You get out of the building except nobody could escape because the doors to the stairwells and the exits were locked. This was a common practice back then, and it was to prevent workers from taking too many breaks, to reduce theft, a normal concern of an employer, but not a great tactic. So people who didn't want to burn to death that day literally jumped out of windows to their death. It was horrific. 146 garment workers died that day. Most of them were women and girls. They were between the ages of like 14 and 23. And back then, locking employees in was a common practice. It was normal. So let's get back to Mitch's job in present day. And this is not to say that workers in industries where there's not paid sick leave is comparable to a huge tragedy like that one. But it is important to realize that norms are not always right. And they're definitely not always in the best interest of workers. We need people to question what's normal in the interest of workplace safety and security, right? And before Mitch and the Labor Federation lobbied for a minimum of three days of paid sick leave for all workers, that was considered normal too. You just didn't get paid sick leave if you worked in an industry like this. So Mitch has a job where he gets to improve lives and redefine norms and do it all not to get huge companies rich or even get rich himself, which we talked about. He does it because this is something he really cares about. 
Part of why Mitch's interview is super unique is that he was intentional about choosing what he does for a living. He had the chance and even started in some other careers that were more glamorous and higher paying, more instantly gratifying type careers. But he chose to work in the labor movement because he saw that any other thing people might want to change or do in their life is literally only possible if they can take care of themselves and their family. He went down to that bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And for anybody who's not familiar with that, I'll post a link to my website and you can check it out. So at this bottom rung is the need for food, water, warmth, rest, followed closely by security and safety. And Mitch decided to work right there because those are literally the foundation of any other changes someone might want to make in life. I mean, even my job as a coach, it's only possible if the people who hire me have a place to sleep. They can feed their family, which likely means that they're safe at work and they're being paid adequately and ideally even treated with respect. So the labor movement affects all of us, regardless of what our job is. After all, you don't want to go to Taco Bell and pick up your burrito that's been wrapped by somebody with snot dripping out of their nose because they're so sick, but they can't afford to miss work, right? Sorry for that visual. It was gross, but you get the idea. P.S. I love Taco Bell. My interview with Mitch is an example of someone not ending up somewhere by accident. Although many of my interviews have been that sort of story, and there's a lot to learn from those two. But Mitch's story sheds light on how someone zooming out and deciding what kind of impact he wants to leave can then zoom back in and help him to find a job that will allow him to do that, which is what he did. So as the granddaughter of a proud union man who always encouraged us to support unions, never cross a picket line, I feel really proud to give a voice to a job in person like Mitch. Super excited. And I know I'm building this up a lot because it's after getting him to sit down with me and asking him all these questions, I realized I might not be able to release this interview at all because of a little issue that I'm going to call a learning moment that pretty much almost sabotaged this entire recording. So about five minutes into talking to Mitch, I realized something was wrong. He's unpacking what his job entails and he's already showing some really gold nuggets about how he got there. And I look and I see that the waves of my recording program had totally started to flatline, which is not good. That means it's not recording. My heart started totally racing and I realized I was missing huge swaths of the interview, like major parts of what he was saying. I started to panic thinking like, do I stop him? He's in the flow, he's talking about what he does. I'm thinking, what do I do? And oh my God, has this happened in other interviews? Imagining all the other interviews I'd done, maybe they hadn't recorded right either. So he's still talking. I'm trying to stay present. My mind is zooming to podcast apocalypse status. I'm basically wondering how the heck I ever thought I could record a podcast, let alone one that involves other people and technology. And it got really dark and catastrophic in my head, you guys. We're talking like storm clouds and lightning, apocalypse. And and then I realized my thoughts were totally running away. And as a coach, this is literally what I teach and do is thought work. Teach people and practice realizing these are thoughts. This is not reality. Watching your brain. So I started to watch my brain, watched it going nuts. <sighs> I took some breaths, let Mitch continue. And then I realized, oh, I have my little Radio Shack recorder going still. 
And it's, it's the equivalent of my oh shit handle. And I've used it in every interview as like a last ditch backup. It's this little handheld device I bought to record lectures in college and it's pretty archaic. It doesn't even have an output. But I realized that even if my audio program was totally failing me, at least I have this, right? So that device picked the whole interview up. And that's the recording you're about to hear. It's a recording of a recording playing into a microphone. (laughs) It basically sounds like we're both on the telephone and the phone is possibly from the year 1970, but it's not going to blow your eardrums and it's clearly understandable, which are the two reasons I decided I couldn't let this interview end up on the cutting room floor. After all, a huge part of my work both as a coach and in the world, is demonstrating that we do not have to do things perfectly for them to be valuable or for us to be valuable. This podcast is only in your ears right now because I decided I was going to put it out into the world as best I can, but I'm not going to strive for perfection. I'd rather share what I have with you guys than wait until it's perfect or until I'm perfect (sighs) because ultimately I think Mitch's journey is valuable. And I want to show you that it's okay to do this. It's okay to be imperfect and do things anyway. And one more quick note. It's kind of like choosing direction in life. If you wait until you're absolutely sure or feel exactly perfectly ready to go, whether it's go back to school, apply for your dream job, open your business, create your art, insert your dream here, you'll likely be gearing up to make a big move when your hospice nurse is fluffing the pillows on your deathbed. And I know that was a super morbid example, but it's the truth. Don't wait to be perfect. Don't wait to feel ready. Don't rush into diving off cliffs or anything. Don't make some huge rash decision without tuning into your heart, your inner guide. Talk to your journal and your mentor and your coach, whoever it is that helps you to act from a place of possibility, not from fear. But don't sit on your dreams until they're perfectly cooked. And if you need a little example of how to do that today, I present to you my imperfectly recorded interview with lobbyist, labor advocate, and the godfather to my daughter. He's actually her godfather. And an all-around amazing dude named Mitch Steiger. Oh, and side note, I did learn my lesson with this interview. You shouldn't be hearing another recording like this. It was a total operator error with my microphone. But if you do, hear it again, I know you'll forgive me because those of you listening don't ask me for perfection and I'm so grateful for that. All right, you guys, let's get on with it. Here is my interview with Mitch Steiger. Mitch, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I so appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm just going to launch into questions. And so the first one is pretty basic, but let's say that you are riding an elevator with someone. And they say, hey, Mitch, what do you do? So for some reason, this person knows your name. <laughs> you have a name tag on. And they say, hey, what do Got you it. do? What what answer would you give them? Well, it, it's funny you ask that because I was just thinking I needed a better answer to that question. That my stock answer is always just I'm a lobbyist. Uh-huh. And, and then all of that, of course, I work for the California Labor Federation. And I can just see people's eyes glaze over. They don't, they don't really know what that means. So... <laughs> What I, what I plan to do the next time this comes up in an elevator, it hasn't, nobody's asked me since I thought of this, was say I work in the labor movement, I'm a legislative advocate, I'm a lobbyist, something like that. But the plan is to start with I work in the labor movement because I think that's a better description of what I do and sort of how I think of myself than I'm a lobbyist. Plus, as we talked about, most people don't really know what lobbyists do. Um, 
And so it's just kind of it's better to have a little bit of an introduction first before that word comes out. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's actually, I like that we're talking about this because now you're totally prepared for your next elevator ride. But I think that right. lobbyist for the layperson, which I consider myself in terms of the political world, the layperson, lobbyist gets thrown around a lot as an insult, as in the lobbyist pushing for this thing that's actually detrimental. But I mean, what I think you, I heard you describe it as money bundlers. Well, a lot of people think that's kind of what we do, and there are lobbyists that do that. They have weird little ways of collecting lots of campaign contributions and making it, they're kind of the funnel, they're kind of the source for those. It, they, there's a way to do it legally that drastically increases your power as a lobbyist because you have ways of channeling lots of money towards um, elected officials and parties and different other kinds of political organizations that yeah. so some of them are that i am definitely not that yeah um, but that's a thing no totally well thank you for kind of explaining uh the difference and also i am me i am not necessarily every person out there so that's the way that i kind of had heard of them and then i also know you and know that you're so much more a part of the labor movement is a pretty big and important role um, in terms of the public good. So, so now we're going to go to a different scenario. Let's say you're at the dreaded cocktail party that we all think of where someone's asking, so what do you do? And you have a little bit more time to explain it, and, and they're, they're really interested, which we are. So now you have a little bit more time. What, what does your job actually look like? The short answer is that it's my job to pass bills that are good for workers and stop bills that are bad for workers. And so because I work for the California Labor Federation, we're the, the state arm of an organization that's basically the union of unions. And then the California Labor Federation has a few lobbyists. I'm one of those. And so we focus on state government, um, state regulatory agencies, and just trying to make sure that the laws passed by the legislature and the regulations passed by the state agencies work as well as they possibly can for workers. Well, it's pretty neat. I mean, I, it looks like you were a part of legislating and I'm, it looks like maybe testifying. Uh, I'm not sure if these were two different acts, but in getting different bills passed that did exactly that. One was like, I remember when it became a thing that everyone, almost everyone, as I was reading about the bill, I learned a little bit more in California was allowed to take paid sick leave, how that was just revolutionary, and you were a part of that bill, it looks like. Yes, so we sponsored the bill that created that, uh, AB 1522, I think, that was about 2014. Mm -hmm. And so the bill uh, just created a new state law that just about everybody gets at least three paid sick days a year. And mm -hmm. so, well, private sector workers. And so... What that did, we hope, was create kind of a floor that, that employers can build on. So, for example, most union members do get paid sick days. Most of them get more than three. But there are a lot of workers out there, particularly in the, like, you know, in the restaurant industry where my wife worked at the time, who got no paid sick leave at all. And especially in industries like the restaurant industry where you really don't want them there if they're, if they're suffering from some sort of contagious illness. It's really, really important for a lot of reasons, not just because the worker isn't miserable, but also so that they don't get a whole lot of other people sick. Oh. And there's a real human toll there. There's a real financial toll there that is hard to 
account for accurately if you're an employer and you're really focused on the short term making payroll this week, you know, keeping the business going, keeping the doors open, it can be hard to think that, okay, well, if I invest in paid sick days now, it will pay off in the future in all sorts of ways, both personal and financial. But the what the bill tried to do was establish that in law and hopefully employers would realize in not too much time that it actually does work out for them in all sorts of ways. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's definitely something that you can kind of quantify and say, look, this is something that did a public good, you know, on a very widespread level. And, and I think that's kind of a good um, pivot into it's easy, I mean, for someone like me to be like, wow, what a, what a cool job to actually be a part of things that affect a large amount of people, especially... I don't want to say underprivileged, but, you know, the working, the working class, like that's a really important role. And I'm sure actually being in the role is a unique feeling in and of itself. So I'd just love to hear from your perspective. What's like your favorite part of what you do? I guess my favorite part of what I do is I'd say just the real tangible outcomes of working on things like bills and regulations. So the most recent one that we worked on was a temporary emergency regulation to better protect outdoor workers from wildfire smoke. And it, it happened much faster than these things usually do from start to finish. It was probably about, I think it was seven months. And at the end now, as of July of this year, workers who are exposed to wildfire smoke have to have access to the N95 masks that keep out 95% of the kinds of particulate matter that you don't want to be breathing when you're near a wildland fire. And there was a real problem there when the fires got really bad last year where workers, especially farm workers and construction workers, were being forced to just work outside. And air that was so bad it was literally off the charts. Like they just they stopped counting at a certain level and the air was way beyond that. And so they're, they're doing all sorts of permanent damage to themselves and risking their own lives to be out there. The employers weren't, a lot of employers weren't protecting them in any way. And so being able to go from one fire season to the next and see that we went from, this was a very, you know, feasible problem out there that people took pictures of it. We saw it happening. And now there's a law that says you can't do it anymore. And fortunately, the fire season wasn't that bad this year. And so there weren't a whole lot of opportunities to make sure that it was working the way that we hoped it would. But that being able to go and say, okay, well, we all saw a problem that was out there. We formed a coalition to help deal with it. And through the good work of that coalition and the Coalition Standards Board and uh, Sunday Member Mainshine, they carried a bill to help urge the Standards Board to do it in a really short amount of time, that we were able to solve that problem. And, you know, I've had jobs before where that wasn't really the case, where uh, I would on some research project that would take months if not years and then at the end it would just kind of kind of go away and there wouldn't really be a, a problem that was solved or a real tangible benefit to it or a thing that had been done it was just I spent a lot of time researching something I wrote a bunch of stuff and I gave it to people I don't know if they read it or did anything with it and then I just moved on to another thing and so that seemed like I, it, it was a lot harder to convince myself that I was doing much to really improve things for workers when that was the case. And now I, there are these specific things that have been done that the Labor Fed has accomplished that I was lucky enough to be a part of and being able to identify those 
it's you know it's a really rewarding thing, and I'm really really lucky to have the opportunity to do it. Yeah, as you were talking about uh, being a part of projects that would be very bureaucratic and take a long time and then not go anywhere, what I was thinking is that as uh, a worker, I guess I'll just kind of put you under that umbrella term, you know, technically I don't know the actual finances of your job, but you were getting paid the same either way. But obviously that's not why you're doing what you do, right? You don't just have, even if you weren't clocking in and clocking out, you're doing it because you want to see this result, this uh, rewarding change in, you know, whether it's wages or worker safety or, yeah. So I do think that's a really important thing to point out that obviously there's something that goes beyond just, this isn't just a way for you to, to pay your bills. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a lot more than that. And I'm lucky that the labor movement does prioritize paying people enough to, to get by. It's, you'll never be poor, but you'll never be rich in the labor movement. And so we're all kind of, you know, they're firmly in the middle class. And nowadays, that's a that's a win. That's a pretty hard thing to, to maintain in a lot of different industries. And so, yeah. yeah, you do, the way that workers get paid in the labor movement is not, it's not piece rate. It's not like I get a certain amount of money per letter I write or per legislator I lobby or anything like that. It's just they pay you enough to not need another job so that you can focus on this one and put everything that you need to into this. And so there are a lot of times you're never really done. It's never like, okay, I've done all my work. I'm going to sit here and watch YouTube videos. It's more like whenever there isn't something immediate that has to be done right in that second, I'm going to stack a PDFs on my desk that I need to read so that I know as much as I can about the workers' comp system or the unemployment insurance system. And some of them, like workers' comp specifically, is so insanely complicated that you never really understand it. I've been involved in it even just in California for nine years, and literally every conversation I have about workers' comp, I learned something that I didn't know before. And so there's no real there's no real downtime. It's just this sort of constant fight to be the best expert, the best advocate you can be. I just heard something kind of important in what you said because as you were talking about how complex the workers' comp topic is. I was thinking, yeah, and and this was even difficult for me to research, to be honest, because it's such a foreign area for me. And I think most people, right, we're not in the legislature, legislature, if I can even say that word, but it can be really intimidating. And what I heard you say, and as, you're, as someone who's immersed in this, who does research on it, you're obviously very knowledgeable on this topic. But what I heard is someone who is interested in learning more, because you said with every conversation I have, I learned something new. And I'm pointing this out because I think it's really easy to feel like you need to be the expert, especially for someone like you, Mitch, who you've been in, in a role like this for quite some time. And you you don't necessarily need to be the expert. It sounds like you have, I, it's called a growth mindset, if you've ever heard that term. So, um, yeah. I have now. Yeah. It, does, that, does that feel true for you? Because I, I hear it while you talk, but I'm not sure how it feels for you. Yeah, it's definitely true, and it's something my coworkers and I actually talk about quite a bit, where we, there are a lot of people in the political world that are very ambitious, and that word ambitious means very different things to different people, and to a lot of people it means you've constantly got to be moving up where you work, or finding a new job that pays you more, or some sort of higher status, some way of being more 
uh, recognized for your work. And for all of us at the Labor Fed, it's like my ambition is just to be a better worker advocate this year than I was last year. It's not to go anywhere. I, I, my dream would be to work here until I can't work anymore, but not stay where I am. The idea is that I get to where whenever, I, I, if knowing something off the top of my head means that that's better for workers versus me having to go back and look it up, that's always good. But if I need to pause things and go back and look it up, that's fine. But the ambition is just to keep building that knowledge base, knowing as much as I can, being able to connect those dots when necessary and when helpful so that I can grow in this job and always do it better because you never you never really plateau you never get to where you need to be it's this constant fight to always get to where you think you should be yeah yeah well awesome and it takes a lot of passion i think to stay on that constant upward trajectory and and i think it might be important to go back to when you first entered this area of work and you know you've had quite some time now to build this knowledge and this area of expertise, but when you were new at it, uh, what was that like for you, kind of entering the political world? Because it isn't, I mean, it's one we all watch on TV, and how was it for you actually at the beginning of the road? It was completely terrifying. I started doing this when I was, I think, 22, and I remember testifying for the first time uh, in a legislative committee in Olympia, Washington, and I was... I've written down my testimony, like, word for word. I just sat down at the table and read it, which you're kind of not really supposed to do. And I was so nervous and sweaty that my hands were on the table, and they were kind of like, they were forming little puddles of sweat under my hands. And I was so nervous that people were going to see that, that I didn't want to move my hands. So I just sat there with, like, like I was, you know, being arrested or something, like my hands on the desk. And talking into this microphone and staring at this piece of paper that I had written and I'm sure it was visible to everyone in the room but it was like the only way that I could get through it I don't know that I've ever been that scared of anything and like anything the more you do it the, the, the easier it gets and the more that fear goes away but yeah it was absolutely terrifying I had no idea what I was doing and it, it took a long time to get there and I'm very grateful to people that uh, helped me get through those those early months and years where I was trying to figure out how this works, because I'm sure, I'm sure I, I was, I did a pretty bad job at lots of parts of my job for a long time, and they, they were patient and were able to, um, you know, wait it out, and hopefully it, it, it happens a lot less now. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that I'm hearing that come up a lot for people. Uh, is that people that helped you along your way. It sounds like when you were new and you were scared, and obviously that, that moment left an impact because you remember every bit of it. It's one of those um, flashbulb memories, they call them. And for sure. and in that part of your career, it sounds like there were people that you were able to turn to for kind of mentorship. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people. And um, the, the first job that I had was actually specifically designed for people with no experience that just wanted to get involved in the labor movement, wanted to be worker advocates to the Washington State Legislature, and they specifically sought out and hired people that didn't have a lot of experience doing it because they were also trying to solve the problem of it being, a, it being really hard to get involved in that kind of work because A, there just aren't that many jobs, and B, 
it's got that catch-22 where the only way to get the experience is to have the job, but no one's going to give you a job until you have the experience. And so yeah. they were very good. And it's also a reflection of this idea of apprenticeship. It's kind of a fundamental part of the labor movement that when you are there and you know what you're doing and you're a journeyman or an expert, that you, you not only take time to help people develop the same experience you have, but you even put money into it and you you invest in that future to keep to keep your industry keep your trade or keep your whatever going that if you don't do that the whole thing goes away and it really does benefit everyone and it also kind of gets into this whole idea of solidarity and these other things that keep the labor movement going but I, i'm definitely grateful that, that they did do that for me yeah yeah no that's an amazing uh an incredibly important thing i think to kind of pass the baton and it really just kind of shows the esteem that people in this area might have for their job, that they want it to remain consistently good, which means mentoring the next generation. And and what I actually kind of want to do now is if we could go back to, we're going to zoom back again and, you know, go back to Mitch when, when you were a kid. And I know that when we're kids, we're off the walls. A lot of us have a lot of crazy dreams or ideas about what we might want to do when we grow up, quote unquote. But when you were a kid, do you remember having any particular ambition or any specific dream? Yeah, the main thing that I wanted to do was be a musician. As a kid, I was really into listening to music and then playing guitar and writing music and playing in bands. And the only real reason I went to college was just because I, I could. The opportunity was there. And when started looking into that sort of thing I had I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living or how I wanted to spend my life other than I was just like this is all just kind of a step on the road to playing in bands my whole life and maybe it'll be something I can make a living at maybe it won't but that's gonna kind of be how I define myself and that that isn't really how it turned out but that that was the plan yeah yeah so that was kid Mitch and it sounds like when you were a little bit older that was still your plan yeah it, right around the same time that I started applying to colleges and well I only applied to one but right around the same time that I got accepted into college was when I, I started getting really into politics I found the animal rights movement and went vegan and started getting really into those issues and then through that issue also started getting into the issue of at the time, we just called it environmental protection. The, the phrase climate change wasn't quite the way that we, wasn't quite as popular as it is now, but it was more about protecting rainforests from things like clear-cutting to create grazing lands for beef cattle and things like that. that. That Getting really into the animal rights movement shows you all of these other ways that those environmental protection issues are connected, and so I started getting into all of those. And so when I went to college, it was kind of with these twin interests of, I really want to get into music, but I'm also really into the politics and we'll see where it goes. And then the, the labor movement thing was kind of later. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into how I got into that now or if I should. Yeah. You know, let me stop at college and just ask, uh, what was your major in college? Political science. It was political science. Okay. And that it just kind of felt more and more right as you, because I kind of I'm interested in the in the trajectory as to how you got where you're at now, and often how there's these sort of seemingly innocuous decisions or events that can lead up to that. 
And, and I don't mean to lead you into like, yes, this innocuous decision and then this one, but you know, it started with college, you were a political science major, and then it sounds like you had these other concurrent interests that were sort of making themselves known. And you know, what was kind of the next step after that, after college? Well, it was, it was sort of during college. The political science major was mainly just because looking at the list of possible majors, that was the only one that seemed like something I'd be interested in enough to spend a whole lot of time studying. Looking at everything else, it was like, I'm not very good at science. I don't really care about advertising. Like, I don't know what these, I don't even know what some of these things are. Uh-huh. But I'm really into politics, so I'll just do that. And but then through the process of being in that major and reading lots of books about different political issues, the more that I started gravitating towards the labor movement. And by the time I was probably a junior in college, I had started to think really hard about this is what I want to do. I, I don't know what kind of jobs there are in the labor movement, but I think this is really important. This is kind of the foundation. And it to me, it was related to veganism in a few ways, the, probably the biggest one being that the same forces that make life miserable for workers are the same that make life miserable for animals and factory farms. It's just this kind of unchecked greed or insufficiently checked greed where there are regulations that are ignored and that suffering is a lot the suffering of animals is a lot more like the suffering of humans than most people realize that it's just as bad for one as it is for the other they do really really awful things to those animals and farms and so it was like these are these are connected in lots of ways but also just in terms of solving problems it did kind of start to strike me that it's really hard to get people to care about things like animal rights or environmental protection or climate change when they can't put food on the table or when they don't have health care or when they don't have reliable housing or education or things like that. It really kind of seemed like if we want to get people to care about things other than just those immediate needs like food, shelter, health care, education, that you got to take care of those things first. And so I really do kind of feel like making strides towards solving those issues, particularly through getting people stable living wage employment and all the other benefits that come from being in a union, you open up the door to them starting to worry about things that they may not think directly affect them, like some cow in a farm hundreds of miles away or some rainforest thousands of miles away, things like that, that one really kind of seems like it needs to come before the other. It seemed to me at the time like it really needed to come before the other. And so that was how, when I graduated, it was like, this is what I want to do. I want to get involved in the labor movement. I want to do some sort of political work for the labor movement. If that exists, I want to try to get that job. If it doesn't exist, I want to try to create that job. And that was that was where I was when I graduated. But obviously, you know, I had no experience doing that. I knew nothing. I had no skills. Like, I could write a 10-page paper about Karl Marx, but as far as doing anything specific, as it relates to the government or the labor movement, I, I didn't have much to offer. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that was a very intentional way you seemed to think about what you were going to do. And and that's pretty incredible at, I'm going to say such a young age, because you were still in college, and you went to college at the traditional age, it sounds like, right? Yeah. So I don't mean to skim over like, oh, this was, you know, you figured it out right away, but to think about, okay, this really matters to me. I, you know, you're becoming vegan, you're witnessing 
or you're kind of waking up to all these injustices. And then going further down, I'm picturing Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which it sounds like you're familiar with, and to those base level needs that, okay, all this stuff I've just found I'm interested in doesn't, not that it doesn't matter, it totally does, but you're right, it's probably not going to get the attention it needs if this stuff isn't taken care of. So I, I guess I just think that's a very intentional mindset for such a young person. So, um, so cool. Hats off to 20, 20 year old Mitch. And, and so then you're, you're feeling more and more, um, it sounds like, all right, this is the area I want to work in. It's coming from this, this passion. And something I like to hear as much as I can about is what it feels like to know, okay, this is the area. There's a lot of areas in the world, especially for someone like you that was as aware of injustice and, and maybe quote unquote problems that needed solving. Um, how did it feel to find the labor movement? And we can just say whenever that was, what did it feel like on a personal level um, that, okay, this, this is kind of where my puzzle piece fits. It, it was an amazing experience. There really wasn't anything like it leading up to that. I remember when I got hired at the Washington State Labor Council before I actually showed up for work at least once a day, I would just go drive by the office and just kind of look at it because I was just like amazed that I got to actually work in this thing that I had been reading about for so long and been idealizing in my head and had been this really important thing, but it just seemed so distant and untouchable. And then when I was offered a job doing it, it was, it was totally overwhelming. And then when I did actually start working there, it was yeah, it was great. You walk in the door and they have all these big um, kind of mounted posters about workers and pictures of workers and all these kind of manifestos about what they do and this is what we're all about and people call each other brother and sister and it, it was like this whole culture that like I, this is where I belong. This is exactly where I want to be and it's really been like that ever since. Uh, been in the labor movement now for almost 20 years and that's the case everywhere you go. It's uh, it's really, really great. I, I really do love it. I, I definitely feel like I'm where I should be. Yeah, that sounds very enamored. And it's interesting, the more people I, I ask about this, it reminds me of how one might feel when they find the one. I've heard it described like that. Like, it's just right. Like, oh, how you kind of just right. look at them sometimes and think, wow, that's really cool that you're mine, especially at the beginning, <laughs> you know? So, um, Cool. And, and, and with that, with that love that you have for what you do, I also am always curious about the other paths not taken. I think there's always things that you also could have done instead. And I would love to hear if there's anything that comes to mind for you that you kind of talks about gazing at these alternative lives is like looking at this sistership that's passing us in the night. And it's beautiful and I'm actually kind of paraphrasing Cheryl Strayed, who talks about this metaphor, but it's like this other version of our life that we're not actually on board, but we totally can imagine. So with that as a buildup, what are some other versions of your life that you didn't choose, but sometimes you think about? The first one that comes to mind was that when I was in college, part of what paid for my college was working as a music director of the radio station. And so it was a pretty intense job. It took a lot of time, and it more or less involved listening to tons and tons and tons of music that came into the radio station and deciding what we were going to put on the air and what we weren't going to. 
and at the time sounded like my dream job like oh my god i can't believe they're actually pay for part of my college for me doing this yeah and that sounds cool yeah it wasn't at all it sucked <laughs> it was terrible i really hated it, it because most of music like anything if you're really into if you're really into cars you hate most cars like there's a really certain kind of car you know you're really into dots and race cars or something and if somebody were to give you like a Pontiac Aztec, you'd be like, what are you talking like, I'm a car guy, I hate this more than most people would. <laughs> and so with music, it's kind of the same thing where I spent all of my time listening to music that I hated and talking to people about that music that I hated and trying to tactfully explain to them why I wasn't gonna put it on the radio station. And it really sucked all the fun out of music for me. I kind of caught myself, I, like I stopped playing music, I stopped listening to music. And I realized that I wasn't really sure I wanted to work in that world, even if the opportunity came up. And it, it did. After I graduated, I tried to get a job at Warner Brothers Records as the assistant to the guy that managed uh, Neil Young and Wilco. And it came down to me and one other guy, and the other guy got the job, which was probably a good thing, because I, I had no idea what I was doing. But it showed me this thing that I would have been responsible for producing and I remember thinking like oh boy this isn't going to go well like I don't have any idea how to produce a document like this. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so wow. I didn't get the job but I kind of this was after I graduated and I just thought that maybe I'll stay in LA and work at a label for a few years and then eventually make my way back up to Washington State and then try to get involved in the labor movement and when we got I lived in this house. We got kicked out of the house. We had to find a new place to live. We were about to sign the one-year lease. And it kind of dawned on me, like, this is, this. I shouldn't do this. Like, I don't want to get locked into this because this isn't really what I want to do. And the more time that I spend here, the farther away I'm getting from where I really want to be. And that just doesn't make any sense. And so, kind of right on the spot, I had to tell my friends, like, sorry, I can't live with you guys. I, I want to go back to Seattle. And so, a couple days later, I just, like, packed up all my stuff and drove back home. And what was that like? Because I think that's another important moment in the path where it looks like, the way I've heard it described is, it looks like you're leaning your ladder against the wrong wall. And it's really tempting if you're a couple steps up already to just, especially, you know, when we're young. And I feel like in some ways money matters a lot when we're young because it's like, oh, I already make, you know, $15 an hour or whatever's really good back then. And, yeah. and to say, you know what? Nope, I'm going to get off of this ladder and start at the bottom of a different one. So, how did that feel? It was pretty scary, because it was, it, it definitely was moving into the bottom of the ladder, and at the time I had no idea, again, if this job existed, or if it did exist, how I could, if I could get it, ever. And so, I, I just kind of knew that, like, if I got this job in the music world, I, this, would, this would probably just wind up being what I did. And then 10, 20 years from then, I would just, I would regret it because I'd be like, you know, this wasn't really what I wanted to do. What if I would have been much happier if I'd done this other thing? So I figured even if I try this and it doesn't work, like I'll know that I tried and this, you know, this idea that I had didn't work out and maybe I'll contribute to it in some other way. But that uh, knowing that I would definitely regret it forever if I didn't try was kind of what made me accept that fear as just kind of a, necessary evil that I was willing to deal with. Yeah, yeah. I like that. I like that description. And something you just mentioned that you would regret it forever if you didn't try. I think that's a, a, 
a way to make decisions that we, um, it just does us all well to t- discuss is kind of zooming forward to your future self. What would that person regret? Because sometimes it's easier to make decisions from that future self than it is in the present day when you're, you know, pulled back and forth by all these very logical and right in front of your face factors that it's hard to see the forest through the trees. So, so it sounds like you did that. Uh, I'm wondering, pivoting a little bit, because we're talking about you leaving what many might describe as a very glamorous ladder. Like, let's say you'd stayed on that ladder, you could be, uh, I don't know, I don't know any of their names, but, you know, some big wig in Warner Brothers Records by now, or something that other people would quote-unquote think was pretty cool. And not that they don't think the labor movement is, it's very meaningful, but you made this choice, I'm guessing, based on some values that you hold, which I actually am not guessing that because of what we've been talking about. What I'm leading up to is, at this point, in present day, like today, how do you define success? What is your personal definition of a successful, and let's just say a successful life, let's not even just say successful work, but a successful life? I guess I would say that it should be defined as whether or not you are achieving whatever your definition of success is. And for me, it kind of came down to this feeling that I wanted to leave the world better than I found it. And one thing that happened there in the middle of the college years that, that I didn't really bring up is that because of the kind of life that I led and a lot of the people that I hung out with, I was pretty sure that I there was a good chance I wasn't going to live a whole lot longer. It was a pretty dangerous lifestyle. It was around a lot of dangerous people. There were multiple groups of people threatening to kill me, and I didn't think that I was going to make it. I mean, I thought, maybe I'll make it to an old age. Maybe I won't. But that, in the meantime, what I wanted to do was just, since I wasn't going to achieve these things that I really wanted to, I just wanted to make sure that I left the world a better place than I found it. And so that became this sort of guiding principle that kept going and it was part of what steered me away from the music industry in addition to knowing that it kind of sucked all the fun out of music when it became my job but also that you know I love music it's definitely changed my life but it, it just didn't feel like something that at the end of it looking back on my life I would feel totally certain that I had made things better that I had left things better than I found them and so having that as kind of this one sentence mantra or mission statement or something, hopefully by the time that I'm done with this work and then retire and then, you know, laying there on my deathbed looking back at, at my life, that I feel like that I did achieve that, that I, the world is a better place because I was here. And so um, that's going to be different for everyone. But the step one is probably figuring out what that is and then doing everything you can to to get there and if you did even if you know you didn't get there as much as you wanted to but you gave it your best effort and you don't feel like you left a bunch of stones unturned then yeah i'd say that's the success mm-hmm. i think that's really great I, I definitely heard throughout your definition uh awareness of mortality whether it was because you were a young person that was living kind of a crazy life and just didn't think they would live a long time or even just as a person that, I mean, I'm a big fan of remembering we really don't live that long in the scheme of things. And to stay cognizant of that and and keep kind of returning to, I like to think of our lives as a movie. And every movie kind of has an arc or 
even just a tone. Like, this is a romantic comedy. This is a, a hero's journey, whatever, whatever it may be. And continually zooming out of our life and asking, like, what is the theme of my movie? That's kind of what I heard, what I heard you saying just now. So that's really cool. And I feel like what you were just saying kind of leads us into a question that I would love to end with. Um, and it is, if you were to talk to that person who, you know, maybe we don't know what their definition of success is, but that person who's just kind of feeling stuck and isn't really sure how to figure out which direction to go. Maybe they're interested in a lot of different things or they feel like they're not that interested in anything or just kind of at a crossroads of what should I do with my life? What advice would you give to them? Boy, it's a really tough one because it's so personal to everybody and everybody is going to be so different, I guess. I'll focus mainly on on my own experience, and that's really sit down and, and take the time to look at look back at your own life that you've lived so far, and try to figure out at what points you were the happiest and why, and use those to try to build a plan for the future. And so, if you are happiest hiking in the Sierra, um, but you really hate being on a schedule, then maybe your goal needs to be, I'm going to build a career that gives me the most time to go up in the Sierra. If it's, if you're the person that, if you were the happiest when your job was most aligned with your values, then that kind of changes things. And it's more about finding a way to to make that career happen, but you know, you don't have to necessarily love your job to love your life, and it's not going to be the same. I, I do. I couldn't. I couldn't hate what I do all day long and still enjoy everything. That for me, it's really got to be that those things have to really enjoy what I do all day long. But that's not the case for everyone. There are all sorts of ways to just use your job as kind of the the means to finding something else that brings that meaning into your life. And so I guess my, my main advice would be to really sit down and do the, the, the analysis and the research in terms of just looking at yourself and looking back on your own life and where you were the happiest, where you felt the most stable and secure, and then how does that translate into what you do for the future, just keeping in mind that it doesn't necessarily have to be through your job. It might need to be based on who you are, but... It doesn't necessarily have to be, and making sure you've got a really good, solid foundation for an answer to that question before you make any big, especially irreversible decisions about what you're going to do is really the important thing. So, all of which is a really long-winded say, long-winded way of saying that just kind of do the research into yourself. A lot of people will give you advice. A lot of books and websites will give you advice, but you're the one that you really need to be researching, not them. And so that's what you need to focus on. I think that's actually really powerful because what it sheds light on is that all of us, even the most clueless of the clueless, which I like to consider that me at 22, when I just thought I had absolutely no information and so many options that sounds, that sounds great. Like, oh, tons of options, but it can be debilitating and frustrating. And, and I actually remember someone kind of sitting me down and she was going to school to be a dental hygienist which, no offense to all the dental hygienists out there, 
but I thought that sounded like the most boring job ever. And I should also say that my, my dental hygienist is one of my favorite people, and she makes the dentist literally a spiritual experience. So even as I say wow. this, I know that any... <laughs> I know. I, I, like, I need to refer everyone to her. So, so I bring that up because she was explaining that she's like, I'm not super passionate about dental hygiene, but I love skiing. And this job is going to pay me enough to get a season pass at Boreal or wherever it was that she was going to, and we were all pretty young at this point, but she was very pragmatic in, I, she loved the, like, outdoors, she loved nature, and she was essentially, at least at that moment, setting up her life and her work in a way that allowed her to be in nature, in Tahoe, as, as much as she could, and it was kind of, uh, in regards to what you were saying, that that's completely valid, that it doesn't, definitely doesn't have to be from work. And also, we all have, we turn around and kind of look in our rearview mirror, we have a track record behind us of moments of real happiness or real unhappiness. I think we can definitely learn a lot from those too. But the, the secret's in, in yourself. And I think that's a really a really great thing for someone who's giving another person advice on how to basically find themselves, find their path. It's already there. It sounds like you just got to clear it a little bit. And that's super powerful, really helpful. Um, Mitch, thank you so much for making time for this. I really appreciate your perspective. I think you do have a really important and unique role in the world and just so glad to get some of your time to hear more about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. You're an excellent interviewer and uh, I can't wait to hear the, the other episodes of the podcast as they come out. I think what you're doing is a really great thing that will also really make a big contribution towards improving the lives of many people and I'm, I'm really glad you're out there doing it. Oh, I hope so, right, as you were talking about. That's what most of us, I think, want to do. So I, I appreciate that you view what I am attempting to put out there in the world as a little positive ripple effect. So thank you for being a part of that. Yes, thank you. All right, take care. Okay, you too. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please pass this podcast along to someone you know who would benefit. It would also be awesome if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It's how we attract new guests, reach more people, and ultimately change the world. I mean, imagine what kind of world we'd live in if everyone was doing something they actually wanted to do with their life. Speaking of which, if you want help finding purpose or figuring out what the heck to do with your life, hit me up. It's what I do as a coach introduce you to your highest, clearest, and most badass, brave self. I promise that's the version of you the world most needs. If you're interested in coaching, would like to join my email list, or if you know someone who'd be a great guest on this podcast, shoot me an email at followyourfire at gmail.com. That's followyourfire at gmail.com. Until next time, follow those fires, my peaches.